it's Wednesday night, and welcome to Graphic Policy Radio. This is the comics podcast for folks who believe that we all have a piece to play in making the world a better place, regardless of whether we are a small superhero a la the Wasp or a very large superhero a la Goliath, who we didn't get quite to see in this new movie, but perhaps in the next one. Um, I am your host, Ilana Levin, a.k.a. Ilana Brooklyn. Really excited to have you guys joining us for the second show this week because it is about time that we sit and talk about Ant-Man and the Wasp. Uh, the movie's been out in the theaters for a little bit. I have not had a second to sit and talk with you. And so I'm really excited to have this fabulous guest I have joining me today. Um, I would just say to start that this episode is going to be just spoilers. You've had plenty of time to see the movie. We're going to be talking in depth about the movie, what we thought about it, its political and social implications, and what it, you know, what we thought worked and what we thought didn't. So, uh, as you may have seen, uh, the this is Marvel. Ant Man and the Wasp is Marvel's latest superhero blockbuster, and people are talking about it as being a lighthearted heist movie about a crook turned superhero, but it's also about found family, the criminal justice system, women in science. Also, the Mexican community's profound love of Morrissey. It also features the MCU's first woman of color major villain. Um, so I'm really excited to have my friend Felicia Perez joining me tonight. She is a narrative strategist and a lifelong geek. She is the innovation director at the Center for Story-Based Strategy, which is one of the organizations that I did Black Panther Fan Activist Con with back this winter. Um, if you guys were in that, it was the, the gift-making workshop. That was their baby, especially, and they really just helped me do the whole damn thing. Like, these are my partners. They're badass. Um, Felicia previously worked at the United Workers Congress, the ACLU of Southern California, and was a high school social studies teacher for 12 years in Los, in the Los Angeles Unified School District. As she also was an active union leader and chapter leader for the United Teachers of Los Angeles. You know I love my union folks. Felicia, thank you for joining me tonight. Thank you for having me. I'm super excited to be here. This is the uh, combination of all of those workplaces and a life uh, long uh, love for both superheroes uh, of all sizes, scales, and uh, storylines. So super excited to be here. Thank you so much. Oh, excellent. Well, I guess I'll start us off by just sort of saying, like, I mean, were you a big fan of the last movie? Were you meh on the last movie? You're talking about the first Ant-Man or the yeah, Ant-Man the and the Wasp? Ant-Man. Yeah, the first Ant-Man movie. So here's the thing. Um, I have been recently embarking on this project of um, toy photography. And um, much of the toy photography has been based on um, fiction and uh, superhero-based uh, Um, action figures and toys and things of that nature and playing with them in such a way where most uh, average toy photography photographs and images uh, and stories are pretty basic. You'll have like a very small Superman action figure or a Batman action figure and they are crushing uh, a beer can or you might have, um, you might have someone say uh, from uh, Iron Man or um, a different you know, sci-fi character on a particular, you know, vehicle, motorcycle, and they're literally, right? So playing the scale in some sort of way with toys. And mm-hmm. um, so I've been doing toy photography that just sort of ups, it, up, ups the ante a little bit with more of a political edge uh, and more of a, a political story. So um, I was in New York uh, in April, and I did a reenactment of a photograph, uh, basically, of the Occupy uh, Ballerina Girl uh, photograph that was iconic for Occupy in New York at the time of this, mm-hmm. you know, individual, like, on top of, um, you know, the uh, Wall Street Bowl, and I basically had different, uh, you know, toy action figures uh, all the way from Aquaman and T'Challa to uh, different action figures, um, including Miguel from Coco uh, and Stormtroopers and all different kinds of storylines all meshed together to talk about just a very basic understanding of heroes and villains and what if toys, what if superheroes were in real life, what would they be doing, how would they be engaging? And so for me, it's a lot of influence of literally the storyline of Toy Story, uh, but Mm. in less cartoon form. Uh, and more in a uh, human real life uh, format instead. And um, I came upon Ant-Man because most of these toys are of a particular size. Uh, 
They're all sort of like average size uh, action figure, with the exception of the Hulk. Uh, the Hulk is a very large uh, option. Uh, you don't really ever get to see a toy of the Hulk as just, uh, you know, regular Hulk. Uh, it's always the big, uh, you know, sort of like Hulk action figure. Um, and so I was trying to find one that was smaller. And um, the smallest action figure I could find was Ant-Man. Uh, and I was like, right. And so the Ant-Man toy comes with the regular size action figure and then comes with two smaller sizes, including uh, a flying, uh, you know, uh, fly that you get to put your small Ant-Man on uh, to go off of. And I wasn't really familiar with Ant-Man. So I watched the movie Ant-Man and I absolutely fell in love with it. Um, at the Center for Story-Based Strategy, one of the sort of, you know, uh, direct action uh, and brand hacking interventions um, that we talk about, that we have critique on, that we really try and push for, that we ourselves try and test with, um, is about scale and playing with scale and making something very large or making something very small um, and having that be part of the character development uh, in a particular, you know, story that we're trying to help folks understand for mostly political action campaigns. So I loved Ant-Man from the gate um, because I just really like things that are in different scales, very large, but mostly I have like an incredible fondness for small things, but I'm also like Mexican. And um, if you come from a, a Latino background, uh, particularly Mexican, there's a lot of tchotchkes uh, that you have in your house and they're very small. Um, I grew up in a house where my mom collected very small uh, Coca-Cola bottles. Uh, and very small uh, Corona beer bottles, um, very small cars. When Micro Machines came out in the 80s, oh, my yeah. God, that was, that was an intense moment. Um, and I played with cars my entire life, really small Hot Wheels. They were always in my pockets. And Micro Machines were just like a whole other level of, of small things, um, you know, had train sets growing up, the, the nine, right? So as, as, as much as um, Ant-Man uh, is a character that I love for so many other reasons, one of the first like draw me in attractions was actually about scale. And I think a lot of that has to do with political power. Um, I'm a queer brown woman uh, and I don't have a lot of political power and agency in the world. So the idea of being able to manipulate and play with things that are smaller than me, especially a cisgendered straight white guy um, who, who is Ant-Man uh, and to have him be very small uh, and uh, me be very big, uh, it, next to them, um, it's just all the things that really talk uh, about a, a resonation of, you know, uh, power uh, more than it is, you know, sort of like a, a just a playfulness. Nothing is, is just playful. It, uh, it's much more than that uh, for my fascination and, and love and interest with both Ant-Man and toys and things that are smaller. That is super cool. I um. I, 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 we, I had seen some of your toy photography when you were visiting New York back in the spring. And um, it just, it struck me like this is really one of the most accessible forms of fan art that I mm. could be encouraging activists to make and do. Um, mm -hmm. So many of the times when we think about like, what are the political applications uh, that we can use for creating fan art to you know, like at Black Panther Fan Activist Con, we, we hired Jermaine Dickerson, who's an amazing illustrator, to like help right. us illustrate a political moment that we'd like to see come to mm -hmm. life from the Black Panther movie in a different context. Mm -hmm. You know, most people, like most of us can't draw, but we all right. know how to play I with toys. I know I can. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like we, we all know how to play with toys. So sort of seeing you use toy photography as a way to like physically animate um, scenes and illustrate things like was just super mind blowing. And I, I totally see how that connects so strongly with this particular movie. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, when I was out uh, on the East coast this last spring, um, when I had, uh, you know, had run into you, um, one of the things that I was working on at the time, this was during the March for our lives um, weekend. And I was in DC, I was at that March in DC and um, I had to think about, you know, at this point I have a collection of about 75 different action figure toys. And when I say action figure, it is from Ant-Man to the characters from Stranger Things. I mean, just about every TV show, movie, film has different sort of like toys that go with it, which by the way, I totally nerd out and know exactly why this actually happens. Um, one of the very first sci-fi uh, films that I fell in love with, especially in terms of like a long series, much like these uh, Marvel films are, um, was Planet of the Apes. 
So Planet of the Apes comes out in the late 60s, but it is the reason why we have toys associated with films. Planet of the Apes is why we have uh, swag and paraphernalia, clothing, lunch boxes, um, cartoons, TV shows, spin-offs, sequels. Planet of the Apes was the very first sequel film. It was the very first mm-hmm. film that became a spin-off in cartoons, that became a spin-off in television shows. It was the very first film that had toys. It was the very first film that had any paraphernalia that went with it that was for merchandise for folks to can basically become fans and create fandoms for this particular uh, movie. And so everything that we now have that we associate with, oh, this movie's coming out, it's going to be great. I can't wait to get the T-shirt. I can't wait to get the toy. I can't wait to get the thing. All stems from that moment. So I'm, I'm a big believer in like being able to see a story and participate in the I had my 75 toys with me that I, you know, traveled with all the way from the West Coast, you know, Nevada, where I currently live. And I was thinking, okay, in all these toys, who would go to March for our lives? And so I had to think about, well, who are the teachers, who are the parents, who are, you know, these sort of like mentors in, these, in this toy collection? Who are the teenagers? So there were some folks from Star Wars that went with me, especially some were characters that are young folks and people who wrote. Um, I had uh, Shree with me from uh, Black Panther, and then I had Yoda with me. So I had Yoda, mm-hmm. Shree, and Rose, um, and this just went to March for Our Lives. And then uh, I was playing with taking photographs of all different action figures, mostly Ant-Man, um, with my good friend Amanda Warner, who um, is popularly known as Monopoly Man. Uh, so Amanda Monopoly Warner Man. Is, uh, the yeah. Monopoly Man. Famous for... Yeah, famous for showing up at like important hearings dressed as the Monopoly Man, so that people yes. are aware yeah. photo, of exactly photo who's bombing. in the room. Right, yeah. photo bombing in this like really insanely brilliant way, um, and changing the story and the narrative, and really calling out uh, who's behind uh, all these different things that are happening. Uh, when Mark Zuckerberg, for example, was being um, you know uh, interviewed or uh, you know had to testify uh, in front of Congress. Uh, Amanda dressed up as a troll doll, um, but had a very, you know, obvious outfit that was a Russian troll doll. Um, so, I mean, they oh, just man. play with cosplay all the time. And essentially what Amanda does is become and embody the toy that then is in the frame of a story um, that is missing a particular, you know, element in it. If we don't have Monopoly Man behind Equifax, as they're, you know, testifying about basically bamboozling and oppressing and cheating and stealing all this money from folks. Um, you know, if we don't have a character in that frame, clearly photobombing as Amanda, as a Monopoly man, then we're missing what this is really about. We're missing that this is really about, you know, uh, capitalism and rich versus poor and how do the rich keep getting rich. And so Amanda embodies the toys, right? So I had taken all of my toys, and particularly Ant-Man, uh, and was trying to take all these photographs now with a real-life toy uh, who is cosplay by Amanda Warner with these smaller toys. Um, and so it's just been really great to introduce characters and to talk about, um, you know, have a moment where it's like organizing and storytelling and coming up with a political narrative, but that is also like fundamentally based in playfulness and in fun and in imagination. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and these times and these particular political, you know, moments that are going to be. Hello? I think we lost you for a second. Um, hold on. Yeah, you got dropped. Okay. Felicia is completely on a roll and being amazing. Let me just tell her you got dropped. Call in. So Felicia is going to be calling into the show in just one second. Um, what shall I say in the meantime? Um, thank you for bearing with us. I, I have this new fancy microphone and we're still getting used to having a different setup. And uh, I know there was a bit of uh, sound quality distortion on the, um, on last, on yesterday's episode with Teeny Howard, which I think was really fabulous. And I hope folks will check out talking about really awesome independent comics, dealing with things like death and being uh, a person who's, thinking about what that means. Um, so check that out. Oh, wait, here we go. I'm back. Hey, Felicia. Hi. Okay. So, I think you sound anyways, good. Uh, just the idea of, of, of playfulness um, is, is super important uh, right now in that, you know, it, it definitely feels like we're up against a um, huge monster, uh, speaking of scale and, and big and small. Uh, it definitely feels like we are um, – 
Ant-Man uh, trapped in these moments where we're getting smaller and smaller and smaller uh, and risk, uh, you know, possibly not coming, not coming back. I, I think I definitely sort of associated uh, with that moment in the film about like risking the idea of becoming so small and potentially losing your ability to um, come back and be right-sized or um, that somehow getting so small uh, over and over and over again, um, that you lose the ability to potentially have the power that you need to defeat something that is only big when you feel so small um, and are so small. So, um, yeah, it's just been it's been really great to play with these toys and, and to play with, you know, introducing and bringing in uh, unlikely uh, characters into a frame uh, of a particular narrative, and Ant-Man just speaks to all of those things so well. Thank you. Yeah, I am... Um... You know, I, I really enjoyed the movie, and it. Uh, the, I enjoyed the first movie. Um, I enjoyed the second movie. It was definitely a case where, coming out of the movie, I felt like there were a couple of big ideas that I immediately jumped on and, like, felt the need to tell my partner immediately, like, I need to tell you about this thing. But a number of the other things that I've been thinking about really have just developed over time, and... Um, I, I was disappointed that like a couple of my, you know, everybody's like go-to critics. I'm just going to like, I know they don't listen to my podcast, so I'm just going to say it, whatever. The folks from Pop Culture Happy Hour and NPR described the movie uh, Ant-Man on the Wasp as being, quote, just as light and inconsequential as the first one, uh, but a forgettable villain wow. and an overcomplicated plot, which the movie struggled against. And I just was struck as I was like, look, this is not the greatest superhero movie of all time. However... Uh, this movie actually is about a number of things that are quite important. And in fact, the villain is really important. Um, and uh, I, I, so I, I, you know, I think like on the surface level, and again, this is why I'm so disappointed in, in, in pop culture, Kathy Howard for not deeping, you know, de- delving deeper into this on the surface level, you know, Ant-Man one was a movie about a man trying to take care of his family. And Ant-Man two is about a man and uh, Ant-Man and the Wasp. And he's a man realizing that his family isn't just the people he's related to and that his family is also the people he works with, who he has an obligation to. And his family is right. the woman who he loves family, who he also has an obligation to and which he'd run away from at the end of the last time we'd seen him. Right. Um, and how he, his family isn't just the people he, he's immediately like genetically related to. His family is bigger than that and he owes them something. And I don't mm-hmm. feel like they were recognizing that. I mean, I, I think like the entire situation of uh, his relationship with Wasp saying like, you left us to fend for ourselves. Uh, I understand you're worried about your daughter, but like, we are also your family. Um, and his daughter's no, you know, nobleness and saying like, I want you to care about other people. I want you to not just care about me is so timely right now in the context of the, the surviving the terror of the Trump administration, when it's really easy to, to say, okay, yep. the president is a neo-Nazi and a fascist. So I'm going to just protect my own children and my own family and not poke my head up because that's how I'm going to keep my children safe. When in reality, your kids like want you to see you doing the right thing, not just by them, but by the community at large, because they're a part of that community at large. And because the health of the community impacts, impacts their, their own happiness too. So I, you know, like, yeah, like as a Jewish and queer person, like living in the Trump administration and, and dealing with like the trauma that I realized that I carry from my grandparents' experience on the Holocaust, like you're, you're constantly in this state of debating, like, you know, am I putting myself too far out there? What am I risking um, in, you know, like, what do I owe other people in terms of helping to take care of them? And, and this, this movie, while not, you know, straight up saying it's about those things, is about those things. I mean, I really take heart with the idea that lighthearted somehow means weak, that lighthearted yeah, somehow means less powerful, that lighthearted You're a little bit quiet. Means... Sorry, Felicia, okay, can you get a little, little louder? Yeah, yeah I'll, I'll, I'll try and get a little bit louder. Um, I, I, just, I really just have issue with this idea that lighthearted isn't strong enough, that lighthearted isn't, you know, something that is as powerful or as deep uh, or as needed uh, as it actually is. You know, I, the same sort of things were said about the last Star Wars movie, especially some of the, you know, uh, script and storylines where things were about, you know, let's not fight against the things we, we hate. Let's fight for the things that we love. Like, let's defend the things that we want to love. So, like, anytime there's a storyline where love is a superpower, where family is strength, 
where these sort of, you know, like uh, values that are positive are expressed, it's all of a sudden lighthearted and not strong enough and not deep enough and not worth our attention. Um, and there's this idea that lighthearted somehow means that um, it is, it is to, to, to not be, you know, like given attention, that it should be ignored. Um, you know, I absolutely agree with you that all of these different, you know, wonderful parts of this film were about alternative families, were about expanding what family means, widening the frame of who is in our family portrait, so to speak, in terms of, you know, a, a planet, a, a community, a continent, a country, um, a people, right? And so the fact that there are so many different levels of his family, from his friends, from people who he met when he was in prison, to yes. uh, people who he knows on the outside. Like, to not, you know, like, talk about how great of a film it is for being so poignant and on track with what's happening, you know, again, big spoiler alert, right, at the end of that film, when we go back to this sort of, you know, um, timeline of what happened in the last Avengers film, we have this moment where Ant-Man becomes abandoned, right? Like he is, he is uh-huh. now separated permanently from this family of coworkers and lovers and family. And he is now, you know, stuck in a place where he is so small and, and forgotten by the rest of his family. And you get this sense of like, what's going to happen to Ant-Man? Is he gone now forever? Because nobody knows where he is because those who cared about him are no longer around. And that is exactly how you would describe what is happening right now with these still 2,000 young people who are, you know, kids, children, who are also separated from their families, not knowing if their families are coming back, feeling small, getting smaller by the day, by the minute. Um, and so how, how is talking about something that's happening right now with a different, you know, set of characters somehow lighthearted? Because I wouldn't say that the separation of families right now and what's happening right now is actually lighthearted. That's so freaking sharp. Yeah. 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 And I, I, I you know, what you were saying right now about, about obligations, right? Like mm-hmm. it is a, it is a storyline about what is your obligation? Who are you obligated to and what are you obligated to do? Um, and I, I, I think that one of my favorite parts is that the, you know, Michelle Pfeiffer mom character, um, she's this cisgendered white woman who's, who, who, who doesn't take up space. Like, literally, the film is about taking up when strategically to take up more space and when strategically to take up less space and to maintain your same power regardless of how much space you are physically taking up or not. I don't, I don't understand how this is, this is, quote, lighthearted or that lighthearted is somehow bad. I think that this is heavy-hearted. I think that this is a film that's very heavy and very large in scale about centering the heart as how we actually defeat the villains that we create ourselves. Because the villain in this story, human created, people created. She was a, she's, a, she's a black young girl who, at least in the film, who is basically being experimented on, who has been abandoned herself, and who gains powers that she then turns um, because she gets to be, you know, a ploy of the government. How, yes. again, is this not completely relevant to what's happening right now? So, again... I would, I would push back and say that this isn't a lighthearted storyline. This wasn't a lighthearted movie. This was a heavy-hearted movie, and that that's actually what we need right now. When we're having conversations with our families, when we're having conversations with young people and across multiple generations, the conversations that I keep having with my family, with my friends, with my extended family, just like the families that are represented in Ant-Man, is that right now, it is about loving. It is about being heavy-hearted. It is about being radical lovers of our values, our principles, and ourselves, and that that's why we are against and opposed and resisting so many different things, because of our radical love of our community. And that's exactly what happened in Ant-Man. And further, Alana, I'm so just, like, excited about this film because it also shows the superpowers that people have outside of being in actual superhero gear and costumes. Right? It talks mm-hmm. about the ability for us all to have superpowers, regardless of our physical ability to shrink in scale. Yeah, yeah. I, I want to talk about Ghost a bit. Um, you know, I, as like a hardcore Marvel nerd, I'm the kind of person who was like, there was a villain who, and she was made up for this movie. They should definitely be 
repurposing a villain from something else, but making her not be a white person. Like that's generally my line about villains is like, right. you should use someone right. who exists, but like have them not be a white guy or, and not be straight proceed. Right. Um, but ghost is not a villain from the comics, but God ghost is super important for the reasons you describe. I mean, for one thing, guys, she is the first woman of color villain in the Marvel universe. She is mm-hmm. someone who has like survived something traumatic that was done to her because mm-hmm. her dad had to be a big man. And he was also because he mm-hmm. was someone who was existing outside the support structures of the traditional science community. He was marginalized. Mm-hmm. I couldn't quite tell like who her dad like had supposed was supposed to have been in the past. Like if he was in Argentina because he was Argentinian, right. or if he was in Argentina because that's where bad guy scientists go in these sorts of right. movies. Um, but regardless, it was sort of like, okay, he's someone who can't do his science thing the way he'd like to. And now his family is in danger because of it. She gets caught in between and she gets used as a tool of the, by the government, uh, without any concern yep. for her well-being, safety or health. And it's like how we have so many of the people in the armed forces are folks who are just trying to get citizenship for themselves and for their family and just trying mm-hmm. to survive. Um, mm-hmm. and that just, and, and, and her, her, her physical performance was really great. Um, just having oh, to yeah. sort of deal with that unstable molecular uh, situation with her body, having to, to, to move and feel that and being an actress who's performing like great acts of great feats of kicking people's ass while also experiencing pain. Um, you know, the actress, mm-hmm. Hannah John, Hannah John Cameron is the actress. And um, just, I thought that like, that's not an easy thing to do. And then in the end of the day, what's so important, is that when she tries to be self-sacrificing and say, you go, you know, to, 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 um, to Bill, uh, her, her, her father figure and mentor to say, go on without me. I did bad things. I'm a bad person. I deserve to be caught and punished. Right. He says, no, you're not alone. I'm going to stand with you and protect you. And we're going to face this together. And I know mm-hmm. for a lot of folks, I know like that was really powerful for them. Um, to see that, like, mm-hmm. the woman of color in the movie was not was, like left out to be, like, a victim by herself and, like, that people and – that, and that somebody was standing up for her and defending her and would protect her. Right. Even though she wasn't, quote, right. perfect, quote, right? Right, because it completely pushes, again, this narrative that the obligation is to not leave anyone behind. The obligation yes. is to not treat somebody as if you don't know them. The obligation is to see yourself in every single person. That is, that is the humanity moment, right? And so this is one of those beautiful moments in the story where the villain gets to be all of the different parts that they could possibly be. They're the victim. They're the hero. They're, you know, all of these different transformative character possibilities. And she plays it so well. And the idea, you know, like, I'm a trainer uh, and an educator by heart. And when you ask people this sort of like fundamental icebreaker question, if you could have any super power, what would it be, right? There's a lot of people who want to be invisible or walk through walls or do all these things. And we never really think about what are the consequences to the superpowers that we want? What are the consequences to the superpowers that we desire? Because if you can walk through walls, that doesn't mean that you can't feel them. It just means that you have the ability to do it. It doesn't mean that when you actually walk through walls or people that you aren't feeling that pain of going through those things. And her particular character, the ghost character, also with the ability to molecularly walk through things and pass through things, she also then has the inability to actually hold something, the inability to be still and be held and hold something is the only thing that she has the most difficulty to do. And that also causes her pain. So when she says that she's in pain in the film, you see it as physical. You could understand its physicality, but you can also see that it's also very emotional and mental. And it's much deeper than just the physical ability of what she does. But she reminded me a lot of deeper vendetta. Uh, in terms of the mm. character of a of a, of a of a character in the story, right? Who has been hurt? Who has been abandoned? Who has been manipulated? Who has been you know probed and prodded and tested and used by like some sort of you know faction of state-sanctioned violence? And then what do they do with that? Um, mm-hmm. So it was a it's a very interesting uh, character, and I I just I I love every character in the film. Including yeah. the small cars, the Hot Wheels, the Bill, <laughs> the everything. Hot Wheels. They were all characters. Yeah, no, that's true. There was a lot of personality in all the vehicles. I mean, and, and also, like, one of the things that makes Scott a hero is at no point in time does he consider not also taking care 
of Ghost. Like when he finds out, you know, right. he's like, okay, we're not going to let you stop us from rescuing, you know, Jan, uh, Hope's mom, but I'm sure that Hope's mom can help you. Like, just stay, just right. stay with us a minute. We're going to help you as soon as we can. And so he's not saying like, oh, you're evil or whatever. Like, it's still coming from a place of like, I'm going to try to help as many people as I can. And that's also what he was trying to do, you know, with his friends and his new, in his new business, trying to, trying to be able to, you know, being former convicted people who are from, who came out of prison and trying to do work. It's, it's not a surprise that they started their own business because Lord knows like trying to get hired after you get out of jail is next to impossible, which is one of the reasons why people end up back in jail, no matter how many skills they've learned or how much work they could do. So they starting their own business, you know, thankfully probably because of Scott and him having a certain amount of white privilege, they have the access to have at least right. a little bit of startup money, although not much as we hear, like they're literally about to not make, um, to not make the paycheck at the end of the week if they don't get this gig. Um, right. But, you know, they're all super trying, they're, they're all, it's all on a wire. It's all on a wire for them to be able to make it. Um, and, uh, you know, I want to, I want to just talk a second about Luis, who is uh, a controversial character. That's Michael Pena's character. Um, in the first movie, I, I kind of felt a little bit like, I think this is a stereotype and I feel uncomfortable. I'm also a white person, so it's really not up to me. I, um, I deferred to uh, a couple of my uh, Chicano friends to see what they thought. Uh, one, of, one of my friends, Arturo Garcia, who has been on the podcast and who shall be again, and you guys should go follow him on Twitter right now. He's at San Diego Comic-Con. Yes. At a boy named Dart. A boy named Art. Um, he said... I've had issues with Luis for a while. Imagine if Turk was the only black character of note in the MCU, you know, Turk from daredevil. He's like a really generic gangster thug, but with a lot of personality, he's very funny. He's, but he's definitely the subject of laughter. Um, that's the space Luis has been given for, for Latinx characters. Yo-Yo from agents of shield. She could be a higher profile, but given the show's estrangement from the MCU and Netflix, that's not happening. His point was like Luis wouldn't be an issue for him if there were other Latinx characters of prominence in the Marvel universe, but having it just be him just is really uncomfortable because, you know, like Luis is like, is, is, is goofy and he's there to be funny and he does do heroic things. His, one of his powers does include being able to knock people the fuck out. And he absolutely does come in and save the day, but I wanted to get a range of opinions on this matter. And I loved your take on Luis. So let, let, let's hear a bit about that. So Louise for me is, um, you know, I wish that they were uh, a good number of Latinx and Chicana uh, characters in every film everywhere. In fact, I search for them all the time. Where are you? Where are you? Um, and I constantly have a hard time seeing myself uh, in films, especially, you know, films that are about the future or about having superpowers uh, or about having any power. Um, uh-huh. And so I'm constantly trying to look for myself. Um, when I saw Louise in the first Ant-Man, I was like, really? We're here? Oh, my God, this is fantastic. And I love the idea that, again, you could have superpowers without actually having them. And it really kind of comes out in the second film where it's like, can I have a superpower? Can you let me put on this suit? Can you do this thing? And, and they keep, like, not necessarily, like, talking about, you know, addressing that question of can you have a, a costume? Can you have a superpower? Can you engage in this way? Because he doesn't have to. He continues to show up just like everybody else who does have a superpower. He just doesn't need it. And it's as if it, he's kind of having this X-Men moment of, like, having a mutation that is a superpower in him. He's an amazing storyteller. He can talk himself in and out of any situation. And he really, for me, it completely was an identification with a, um, you know, a child uh, character in Spanish-speaking, uh, you know, sort of like children television shows called um, Chespirito. So there's a television series called Chespirito. They're adults uh, at range of different characters. They have little skits. And there's about seven different storylines. And one of them is a character named Chapulín Colorado. And uh, he's basically the, um, you know, red grasshopper uh, is sort of the translation. And his superpower is that he randomly shows up when he's not supposed to. So there might be like a damsel in distress, uh, let's say, on the sixth floor of a hotel room. 
and he, uh, Chapulín Colorado, might be next door playing poker, and he loses or cheats or something, and they throw him through the wall. So he, he ends up, like, falling into the wall of the room of the damsel in distress. And she's like, oh, gosh, somebody's finally here to rescue me. And he's like, what are you doing here? Why are you tied up? Like, he is the accidental hero at all times. And he is a fan culture favorite in Chicano communities in terms of, like, Chapulín Colorado. He has his, his weapon of choice is this small little plastic hammer that when he hits it, like, makes a squeaky noise. He has a, oh, a headband that has these I've tiny him, little yeah. red balls. Yes, I know you know who this person is. Yeah. And yeah. He, he totally resonated for me as the Louise character because, again, it was the accidental superpower, the unbeknownst to me, you know, ability to show up and actually do all the things, and I just don't recognize it as, as being a moment. And all the different ways in which Louise has given so much time. I mean, again, I, I started talking um, with you in this conversation on the podcast about scale and taking up space. Louise always takes up a particular amount of space that shows his superpowerness. He has so many different lines. He's telling all these different stories, bringing in his grandma, bringing in Morrissey, breaking down how Morrissey has any connection to the Chicago community. Like his ability to take up that space and get big for a moment and then come back down and be small again is just super fantastic and, and fits within the range of everything that's happening there. And I will say that, you know, um, you know, Pena was in A Wrinkle in Time before. Uh, I was really looking forward to seeing the film A Wrinkle in Time and, again, was like, okay, you're talking about diversity in the lead-up to the film. You're talking about diversity in the cast. You're talking about diversity behind the camera, in front of the camera, in the editing room. But where the fuck are the Latinos? And I finally saw a particular trailer that had um, always shown Michael Pena's character from the back, so I couldn't see mm-hmm. who it was. And there's a different trailer that came out, and I see the front of him. I see his face. I'm like, oh, there we are. There's a Latino in A Wrinkle in Time. But when I see the film, he's a pawn of, like, darkness. He is a bad person. So, you know, if Luis's character was a villain, if Luis was a villain in the film, I would have issue with the fact that the one time we have uh, a Latino representative uh, or character in the storyline, they're villains. Because that's the stereotype that we constantly are. Ex-con, I want to really like, push back on the idea that somebody who is in prison is a villain, that somebody who is in prison is a bad character. I think that somebody who is in prison shows the complexity of what happens in our system and who we actually send to prison and for what and what are the circumstances by which people are put in a social vilification of being the bad guy because they're in prison. There are a lot of folks who are, who are bad people and they are not in prison. In fact, some of them are leaders <laughs> of countries. Right. Yeah. So the idea that people who are ex-cons, <laughs> right? Yeah. The idea that people that are ex-cons or prisoners or anything like that, that they are automatically the bad folks, is really like something that I would really want to push back on. And so the idea that Luis is a hero, has superpowers, takes up space, and then doesn't take up space, is a full controlled agent in this, and is actually the person who's running the ex-con establishment business that they're trying to come up. He is the man. Um, yeah. I absolutely love everything about his accidental power um, that he really seems to be growing into um, and just super excited about that. Thank you for that. I want to talk about scale a little bit more. Um, you know, uh, we, we learned, in, you know, in, in the last movie that uh, Janet Van Dyne had gone subatomic uh, and we mm-hmm. see now why, you know, it was to stop these missiles. And I couldn't help, you know, in, in the narration, uh, uh, Hank Pym is saying like, oh, it should have been me. I should have shrunk myself down to do it, but my regulator was broken. I couldn't do it. So she stepped up and did it. And, you know, I definitely like respect that he's someone who like let her make that choice and wasn't going to try to be like, no, no, no. You know what I mean? Like he respected her right. and let her just right. make that choice. But by the same token, it just feels like such a metaphor for it feels like such a metaphor for how women make themselves invisible in service to the greater good. And, you know, and I'm not saying this as a critique of of Hank Pym. I just think it's a metaphor as an individual 
you know, like he did the right thing in the circumstances. But I think it really felt like a metaphor for women. Like when you think about the hidden figures, you know, like the, the black women scientists who were really written out of the public history of who the heroes of the space age were until the movie, you know, brought people's attention to them. Um, or like there was a woman, I'm blanking on her name. She and her partner like discovered something and got the, the, the Nobel Prize, but only he got it. Because they would be too confusing right. if both their names were on it. Like that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. The way women are expected mm-hmm. to make themselves small in service to the man. Um, and that just felt like that was a really clear parallel. to. But, but one thing that was really very much in the script, though, as somebody pointed out to me, he gets called doctor all the time. And Janet doesn't. Mm-hmm. Janet is clearly uh, a scientist here. Now, in the comics, Janet is not a scientist. She's one of the rare superhero characters whose like day job has very little to do with what people would assume superheroes have to do, but actually has a great deal to do with superheroes' success. Um, in the comics, she's a fashion designer, and in comics canon, like going back to the invention of the Avengers, the Avengers in the '60s, she names the team. She came up for the idea of like let's hold a press conference to tell people about what we're doing. So even in like the you know in, in Jack Kirby and Stanley's original comics like that were written before the second wave of feminism and there was like plenty of cringeworthy shit going on believe me they still were like (laughs) janet came up with the avengers janet named the avengers and she's like the marketing person and you know marketing skills and branding skills are often very categorized as being like pink feminine skills and therefore worth being mocked and not as valid and important as science and um so I thought it was really cool when recently I'm pretty sure it was I'm pretty sure it was my my friend Jeremy Whitley in his comic Unstoppable Wasp uh, had uh, Janet point out to folks like on panel she's like you know nobody seems to remember that I named the Avengers uh, and that that was a kind of an important thing and I'm the founder of the Avengers but whatever and I was just like yes exactly like Excellent. how the how, how the women's contributions that are gendered as more feminine are ignored. Anyway, I'm fine with the, with, with the movie having her not be a fashion designer. It would have been just one too many themes. But I did want to shout out to her original origin, which is really actually pretty cool. Um, but yeah, but she is a scientist here. She doesn't get to be called doctor. She does have amazing hair, though. Michelle Pfeiffer has amazing hair. <laughs> Michelle Pfeiffer has many things that are amazing. Um, I think that uh, it's super interesting. I, I, I love I love where you're taking this about, like, the, the marketing and the branding and that she's really the, the creator of what the story is going to be of the Avengers. She gives them the name. She gives them all these different parts and pieces. And, you know, and today it's sort of like political work. The, the various, you know, tasks and skills and roles that people need to play in order to make, you know, political actions uh, have the impact that we want them to have. Communications and people who market the stories that we want to be telling are central. They are, mm-hmm. they are definitely folks who have the superpowers along with their brothers and sisters in the direct action work. And so I just think that it's, it's super fascinating uh, what you're saying in terms of these parallels and in, in terms of her literally disappearing, her physically disappearing and sacrificing herself and also getting lost, right? That they kind of forget her. Um, And that there's this moment of, wait, I think science is telling me that I could get you back. Not my heart. I think that there's (laughs) some science, there's some math here that could potentially bring you back. Um, And my heart has been longing for you, so I will do whatever it takes. There's a little bit of both of that um, at some point towards the end. But I also want to bring up that while you're bringing up this moment of her having this, like, ultimate, you know, quote, ultimate sacrifice, not just for her family, but for humanity. I mean, she's stopping these uh, bombs from, you know, really affecting a lot of people in the, in the particular area had it gone off. We also have Ghost, you know, being a female character who is the villain because, quote, are women not supposed to be violent? Like, she's constantly mm-hmm. trying to say, I shouldn't be this way, I'm not supposed to be this way, like, I'm in pain. So there's this thing about women shouldn't be in pain, uh, and that women shouldn't be, you know, like forced to be violent, and that women aren't naturally violent. So that's why she's definitely struck, or has been struck by something that is causing her to be violent, because women are inherently not violent, and women should not be in pain. So there are these, like, dual things happening at the same time in terms of who ultimately is the hero and who ultimately is the villain in this story. At the end, you have, you know, um, Michelle Pfeiffer's character, the doctor who's not named as such, 
who's able to literally just place her hands on the temples of the ghost villain and allow her to feel in a different way. She feels less with her whole body and more with other things because she's able to actually be present completely. And I just think that there's like a, a whole moment there of like, what are we really doing? You know, like could ghosts be healed without necessarily turning off their physical strength and ability to cause harm to people who maybe need harm caused to them. Like I just, mm-hmm. there's, there are these two, two things happening at the same time um, in terms of what does healing actually look like for men and for women? What does power look like for men and for women? How does scale actually not, you know, just because uh, men get small and women get small, it, it doesn't have the same impact. It doesn't have the same story. Um, so, you know, and the wasp never gets really big. It's only Ant-Man. You recall that, that scene yeah. in the um, the recent film where um, the two characters are comparing how big they've gotten, right? Yeah. Like, oh, I've gotten this big. Oh, no, what's the biggest you've ever gotten, right? And wasp is basically saying, you know, interjects and is, is basically like, can you both stop talking about how big your dicks are, essentially? Like, that's how the conversation was going. But there's there was definitely a lot of these moments about uh, – you know, sort of like a toxicity of masculinity um, and a, a disappearing and a smallness and a, and a taking up no space um, for for women uh, and particular types of women in the storyline as well. Well, I also want to talk about Lawrence Fishburne's character, Dr. Bill Foster, who I was so excited when I saw he was cast. I'm a huge Lawrence Fishburne fan. I, I cannot not have a crush on him, no matter how old he is. Um, but uh, his character, Bill Foster, in the comics becomes Goliath, who basically is a superhero who gets super huge. And he um, is, is someone who's like a, yeah, who's like a co-scientist with uh, the original Ant-Man, Hank Pym, and, you know, and on all that. And I, I thought that the, the fight between, the, the debate and argument between him and Hank over who should be getting credit for the research, again, I was like, oh, this white fucking scientist deciding that he's the one who's actually the expert marginalizing the work of the black scientist who's now like, you know, he has this nice professor job, but he's not making a billion dollars. Like the, you know, the PIM business was this huge company, right. Making a lot of money. Right. Um, you know, I mean, so, you know, Bill Foster is in a different position, but the good news is of course, unlike in the comics where Bill Foster totally got shoved in a refrigerator basically uh, at the start of civil war, just because they needed to have a, a named hero die uh, Bill Foster didn't get killed here, thankfully. Like Bill, Bill Foster is like frequently used in comics analysis as an example of like I don't know, let's just kill the black guy. Um, mm. So I'm I'm glad that that didn't happen here, and that Bill Foster did not get killed just because they needed someone to die and they didn't want to have to sacrifice one of their white toys to do it. But yeah, I just loved having him take care of Ghost and like that that relationship was clear and him. And he can be so, and, and, and Lawrence Fishman can be really funny. And that, that, that scene between him and, and Hank Pym was just freaking hilarious. I, I almost died. Um, yeah, I was yeah. waiting for some fun sunglasses to come out. And some, there's that scene where uh, they show him, you know, uh, giving the lecture in the class. And I was like, yeah, are there going to be pill options here? Is there going to be a red pill and a blue pill as it comes out? I mean, that was definitely... <laughs> I was definitely waiting for some, you know, Easter egg of Matrix uh, sort of like storyline in there. And it, just, it, it didn't come. But, you know, just come. having Lawrence Fishburne in there alone is, is, is enough. Yeah. And that he'll and that he'll be able and, and that he can come back and he's not dead. Maybe he'll have some role in rescuing Scott. You know, I don't know. We shall see. But that definitely but, feels like that's the softball there. That's I, I would say that that's the reason why he wasn't killed off uh, in the in the film is because somebody has to know, be thinking about, be considering, wait, where are they? Where are the rest of them? Because the movie sort of left with this idea that we don't abandon anymore. Definitely widen mm-hmm. the frame of who is family, who do we have obligations to? And if you set that up and have this moment where, you know, half of everybody is gone, I just, my question is, is Dr. Foster still around? Yeah. I mean, I, in the end of the first movie, it was clear to me that they were going to have, 
Janet, obviously they ended it with Janet, basically, not sorry, Janet, with Hope, you know, getting a wasp suit. So I'm like, okay, these guys are smart for a change. And they're like, oh, we can expand our stable of heroes to include a woman incredibly easily and could have done that from the outset of the movie. Uh, let's not make that yes. mistake. Let's have it be in it in a second. But also it was clear that it was clear that, that, that Janet was going to be brought back in some way. Like, you know, the reason why they have him go subatomic and come back is because that that you know that when uh, it's to show amazing psychedelic visuals that people will continue to get stoned to for generations to come, but also because it gives them ability to have you know have her get brought back and have that the rescue. And it was also like it was cool because it was not a damsel in, disca- in distress rescue in the slightest. It was she gets herself saved. She uses her own powers to be able to show her family where to find her, which was super cool. Mm. I also really yes. enjoy the like ridiculously painfully charming Paul Rudd uh, embodying, like, like having her pilot his body when she, t- <laughs> when, when, when she takes over his body, I, it would have yeah. been really easy for that scene to have been played in a way that was like anti-queer, basically. It would have been really easy yeah. to have it suddenly be where like, he's suddenly mincing. And like the joke is that he's being effeminate and dude, Paul Rudd and to the director, like, they're like, no, no, no. He's going to clearly not be the same person, but it is not going to be played off as like, haha, now you're effeminate. Effeminate is bad and silly. It was, it was they, they, they dodged a bullet. It would have been so easy for that to go badly. Um, and, it, and, it, and they actually did a great job of it. And, and the whole thing with like, oh, shoot, I'm holding your hand. Oops. That wasn't paid as a, played as a gay panic thing. It was played as like, oh, right. You're, you're not my wife. You're not my husband. Right. Okay. Back, back, back to normal now. Thank you. Um, you know, like it, it, it could have been so easy for that to be homophobic and, or, and, and anti-feminine. It wasn't. Absolutely. absolutely. And they, and you're, and you're, you nailed it. You nailed absolutely, it. You absolutely correct it on the head like that. that. Like that's that's exactly, exactly what happened. What they, happened. Did they did it. Right. right. They did it without <laughs> offense. They did it with it being clear what was happening and without anybody having a moment of, Oh, here's where we can easily put in the gay laugh gag. And, yeah. you know, like make that be a, a constant trope. They went different. And I think that that, again, lends itself to critics being able to say it was lighthearted. It didn't offend mm-hmm. anyone. Like, and I, again, I, I, I just really want to, like, just push that as much as possible, that lighthearted, not having controversy, not having somebody be offended, not having people walk away and go, oh, that was a little too this or a little too that, or I didn't, you know, like, these are actually good things. These are things that we should be championing. These are things that we should be supporting. These are the things that we should be demanding that all films have because that we have on our shoulder, that we go to films and some of us brace ourselves for the potential moment Mm -hmm. where we're going to be completely hurt and offended and have the superhero moment get ruined for us. Or there are these moments where, you know, like something really horrible is going to happen and what we're then teaching as values in that storyline for any of the audiences and consumers of that story is that this kind of violence, that this kind of denial, that this kind of, you know, marginalization is okay and is acceptable. And none of those things came out in in this film. And so I just, you know, again, I, I challenge us as an audience to really reframe what it is that we actually want in a film versus uh, that it's just different from most of the films that we get. Um, speaking of like having things not be offensive, I want to do a little bit of comics history about the history of FBI agent Jimmy Woo. Um, I was so excited when I found out that that was the name of the character he was playing. You know, Randall Park's famous comic actor who's just ridiculously talented, funny, and charismatic. Um, Ram, uh, the uh, the character Jim, uh, FBI agent Jimmy Wu dates back to 1956 in a miniseries Yellow Claw, which is this is really interesting. So Yellow Claw, as you could probably gather, is like he was like a super uh, red scare, you know, against like fear the fear the Oriental quote unquote other dangerous subhuman yellow people, yellow peril kind of a story. But the character invented to fight the evil yellow claw was the first not racist uh, Marvel Asian American hero, actually, because FBI agent Jimmy Woo was just a Chinese American guy who lived in San Francisco and worked for the NBI and like challenged supervillains and like risked death and was a badass. Um, you know, like the, the, the art of the first issue was like kind of stereotypical and awkward, but from the second issue, which Jack Kirby, my man started to draw, it like, wasn't 
it wasn't even like that cringeworthy like why is everybody's skin this color like yellow art it was straight mm-hmm. up like this is an asian american guy and he works for the fbi and he's a badass hero and that had not happened in the comics before he was basically it was basically the, he, he he was you know he had swagger and he was self-possessed and he was dashing and um he was just very much like this traditional like you know fbi agent do-gooder you know hero uh, and the only thing is he operated out of san francisco and was chinese american and that was a huge deal huge deal so you know going back to jimmy woo definitely is a character who has real legacy in marvel comics um jimmy woo was not at all like jimmy woo uh i you know like jimmy woo of the comics was definitely not a a comic not a comic character and that was a good thing as we desperately needed like an Asian character who wasn't treated as either a horror or a joke. Um, I was a little yeah. bit disappointed that we didn't get to have any of the sort of badass super spy agent woo, not spy, I guess FBI's are, I guess FBI's are their agents and they're not spies, whatever, you know, that we didn't get to have that in the movie was a little bit disappointing to me, but it, but by the same token, Randall Park is always such a pleasure to watch. So I suppose they did the thing that I usually do want them to do, which is to recycle some other name and and, and bring some new life to it. Um, so, but yeah, that's my that's my bit on FBI agent Jimmy Woo. He later goes on to join Shield, and throughout comics, you'll periodically see somebody pull him out and be, and be like, "Oh, that's right, we have this like great Chinese American like super agent dude. Let's not forget him. Let's have him be the agent." that Captain America interfaces with. Let's have him run into Daredevil because Daredevil's in San Francisco. And so he also was like a very like San Francisco character, which was also, again, great for the purposes of this movie, which was based in San Francisco. Yeah, I think that's probably one of my more, um, you know, complicated and I sort of, you know, let that go and I probably shouldn't. Um, watching all of these different Avenger and, and Marvel films is that there's always this, like, in, the, in these comics, there's always this very, um, you know, compatible, symbiotic relationship or with law enforcement. So, you know, in Black Panther, we have, mm-hmm. you know, uh, in the Black Panther film, who is allowed to be one of the heroes uh, is also mm-hmm. the CIA. Um, yeah. The complexity about, like, Killmonger being a part of the military, and you've got Claw, and, like, but they're bad? No, there's, there's this idea in the Avengers and, and, and Marvel films that there are some good cops, that there are some bad cops, there are some good FBI, CIA agents, and some that are, are bad, just like there are some good superheroes, and there are some bad superheroes. And I think that, for me, like, doesn't doesn't really resonate, like, you know, so you have these characters in this in this Ant Man and the Wasp film that are the police officers, and none of them are ever the villain. They might uh-huh. be the joke. They might be uh, the point of comic relief. They might be seen as stupid and silly and ignorant, and you know, caught like Keystone cops, like they're they're never quite there at the right time. But they're not seen as bad people. Um, yeah. So it's just it's it's complicated. Uh, for me, that the military and the police and and what in real life is oftentimes not complicated. It's very cut and dry. It doesn't mm-hmm. matter who you are as a person. You give them that amount of power, that amount of training, that amount of you know state-sanctioned uh, approval of the violence that you're doing, and you're automatically good. Um, and so, at least in, in the Avengers, there there's like good and bad within it. And in real life, I'm not so sure it's that simple. Yeah, I, I, I definitely am always, I mean, it's something that like superhero fans in general, like struggle with in terms of our consumption of superhero media in general as well. I mean, I would say about in this movie, at least it is clear that the FBI should not be spending its time bugging these people. Um, so Absolutely. while you have a very, very personable and likable face on the FBI, it's also clearly like they're just so eager to watch anybody slip and jump on them for no damn reason you know, they, mm-hmm. they refuse to understand any subtlety or context. It's all just like the letter of the law with no shades for interpretation of the realities of folks' lives. And it's clear to everybody that them doing this is a fucking waste of time. Like Thanos is out there somewhere doing some real shit, right? But you guys are just going right. to continually to harass these, these formerly incarcerated people for, for, what, for, what, for what reason? So, you know, yeah, like, I don't like that the face of policing and especially the face of the FBI is like, we're super personable, but at least like nobody watches this and says, gee, the FBI sure is cool. 
Like, you don't watch this movie and think the FBI sure is cool. You're like, that FBI, they keep meddling in my hero's ability to have a happy and fulfilling life. Why won't they leave him alone? That's better than some of the other movies. Right, right. Agreed, agreed. But if you're an Asian, if you're an Asian American watching this last Ant-Man and the Wasp, I'm not so sure that you don't want to be Randall Park. I'm not so sure that you don't want to be Jimmy Woo. I mean, I think you you might not want to because he seems just you know sort of like a a fool. He's the jester. He's the joke uh, of the story. But who else do you have if you're Asian American and you were watching that film? Who who else do you have to identify with and and have as another option, an alternative? Yeah. Yeah, he is the only Asian American character in the movie, right? I think so. Yep. So, yep. pretty limited. Pretty limited. Um, you know, I, we haven't talked at all about the last set of villains, which are the uh, Walton Goggins, aka Sonny Birch's crew of gangsters that are just trying to uh-huh. steal the technology and make money off of it. And you know, they've got their in with the FBI, who's leaking the money and is just being a greedy motherfucker. Um, I don't know. Do you have any thoughts about how those particular, how that gang operated? Well, you know, it's, it's fascinating that um, while the whole film is making things go big and small, they are the same size. And it's mm. because it almost feels like because they don't necessarily engage in scale, that they literally get lost in the story. I had completely forgotten about them until you even said anything right now. Oh, right. There is an actual villain in this particular storyline, and it's not Ghost. And so yeah. that, for me, is actually the, the bait and switch that is also happening in real life right now, that there mm. are people who are actually responsible and the central characters to the problems and the conflicts that we are having, real, real villains. And what they are able to do is by not getting really big and not getting really small, but just staying them same selves, that they are able to just sort of like watch everybody else engage in things, and they're just there to pick up the loot when nobody else is watching and when somebody has dropped the ball. They make Ghost into a villain because Ghost comes into the scene uh, at that restaurant when there's the negotiation for the power source, right, to be able to, to do the work to find uh, you know, folks and, and bring them back and, and Ghost appears and starts to do things and it's the real villains of the of the story who are also like, wait, there's another one? There's something besides us that's also trying to, you know, take the power? <laughs> but they're the real gotcha. villain in the storyline and they get completely erased in many ways in it because there are other villains that get really cast in the story in a particular way so that you're more invested in ghosts. You really want to find out the backstory of ghosts. You never find out the backstory of the rest of these folks. Um, and they're just sort of seem they're, they're almost like tropey, you know, it's like, Oh yeah, there's always a guy who's, you know, basically the person who's giving you the thing from the dark internet, from, from the dark community, that, you know, is, is trading in weapons and information that they shouldn't have. I mean, that, that exists all the time, and you can't really remember them. Do you remember the people who uh, enslaved Olivia Trope in Scandal? Nope. Do you remember <laughs> the people, like, the people who are actually responsible for the stuff oftentimes we completely lose sight of because we really want to bring in other villains uh, and other folks. I mean, that ghost doesn't exist. Uh, if we don't have this sort of like masking over who the real villains are, so it feels it feels very like right now when I'm thinking about like what's happening in in the states right now as a country, are the real villains actually uh, a part of the story? Are they actually a part of the frame? Or are we just talking about Trump and Putin because that's what we want to see right now? That's who's being shown to us as the villains. But the real villains go way beyond Trump and, and Putin, and they're not necessarily the folks that have the ultimate superpowers. Their power is also hidden. Wow. That's totally sharp. That's totally sharp. Um, and I'm glad also that we did get some of these, just these, like, shitty bros who are just not... We, we don't have to think too hard about our great pleasure in seeing them getting their asses kicked. I needed a little bit a little bit, a bit of that mixed in for me and um, enjoying them getting their come up and set the hands of Luis was vindicating to say the least. 
Absolutely. I mean, there was that whole moment where basically the thing that really called out, uh, you know, all these different sort of changes in the story was the truth. The ultimate weapon that was able to be used against uh, the ex-con employees and what was able to be used against the real villains in the story was the quote-unquote truth serum that wasn't or was. And it's that the truth was the ultimate superpower to really take down certain things. It was the, it was the uh, you know, unnamed superpower in the story that anybody could use, that anybody had their hands on. It wasn't in a suit. It wasn't in a particular person. The truth was its own character. And when it came in, when the truth was revealed and came in, it completely changed the story. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Felicia, for joining us. I... I've just had my mind blown many times over in our conversation. I like, I'm ecstatic at how amazing a guest you are. And I hope you will come on to talk about more things in the future because this was fabulous. Hate to be self-congratulatory. Thank you but... so much. Thank you so much. <laughs> um, where can our listeners uh, follow you on the internet or follow your work or find out more about what you guys do? So if anyone is interested in taking a look at these uh, toy photography uh, photographs, um, we're on Instagram at Imagine Action Figures. Um, uh, again, I, I'm the Innovation Director at the Center for Story-Based Strategy. You can find us uh, on Twitter at, uh, at SmartMeme. Uh, you can find us on Facebook, Center for Story-Based Strategy. And myself, I'm on Twitter at Former Miss Perez. Oh, you're at, I'm sorry. Repeat your Twitter account one more time. Former Miss Perez, as I was a high school uh, history teacher for 12 years, and I am no longer. I am former Miss Perez. Oh, I see you now. Yes, former Miss Perez. Well, thank you for you. And you're like more active on Twitter than I thought you were. Oh, my gosh. Okay. Well, this is very informative for me as well as for our listeners. Um, so thank you for joining us. And uh, we're going to be leading a session together at Netroots Nation. If anybody's coming to Netroots Nation conference in New Orleans, August 2nd through 4th, mm-hmm. to become a better activist, to connect with other activists and generally be awesome. Um, so thank you, Felicia. And, uh, and I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing you very soon. <laughs> Talk to you later. Yes. See you soon, my friend. Bye. Bye. So thanks, you guys. Um, I actually am not sure what our next episode is going to be on Monday. Uh, But there will be an episode Monday. Exciting to to have that. Uh, It could be a rundown of San Diego Comic-Con, but I just have to check with my other host, the erstwhile Brett Schechner, and see if he's available to talk about it. In fact, if you care about San Diego Comic-Con, you should be checking out graphicpolicy.com right now. There's great coverage of it on the site and on their Twitter account at Graphic Policy. so, yeah, if you're coming into this episode late, it's going to be on YouTube. I Sorry, it will be on YouTube eventually. It usually takes a few days for that to happen. But it's on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher is where our, is where our show lives. It will be downloadable there soon. And uh, I hope you'll listen to it. Check it out. And graphicpolicy.com is our, our home base, our website. And uh, you can find me on the Internet. I'm on Twitter far too much, E-L-A-N-A underscore Brooklyn. That's E-L-A-N-A underscore Brooklyn on Twitter. Uh, Give me a shout out and uh, thanks again. Keep it geeky.